Heads up, peers. For the first time ever, The Peers Project is going to be teaching you our go-to podcasting system that we use to create podcasts for iconic brands like Forever New and Modibody. That's right. We've just launched our signature course, Podcast Power 101. It has all of our behind-the-scenes secrets on how to start and launch a professional podcast, including how to craft a powerful podcast concept that will immediately position you as the go-to expert in your industry, our go-to podcasting equipment and recording system to easily create high-quality recordings with no confusing tech involved, our tried and tested podcast marketing strategies to attract your ideal listeners and automatically make your podcast a raging success, plus so much more. Now is your time to finally start your podcast peers and share your message with the world. So head straight to the link in this episode's description and sign up now for Podcast Power 101 at our special pre-launch price. But hurry, peers, we're closing the doors on this special deal soon, so be sure to take action ASAP. Now let's get into this episode. This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akidanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveler, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. All of us are dying to make a difference in other people's lives. The question is, how? Here to answer that very question is today's guest, Kylie Russ. Kylie is the co-founder and COO of Govern for America, a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to uplifting the next generation of dynamic leaders. She's also a 2020 Forbes 30 under 30 listee. I'm so excited to talk to Kylie today about the emotional side to running a business, how we can discover areas for change and how we can step up to craft a better future. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, without further ado, here is my conversation with the amazing Kylie Russ. Kylie, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. 
Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. Cool. So, you know, you and I connected recently over LinkedIn. And when I looked into you and all the awesome stuff that you're doing and the work that you're doing in the government and entrepreneurship space, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, I'm really excited. I I checked out some of the podcasts. Uh, that that you've done before, super inspiring people. So I'm I'm honored to be on here. Oh, I love that. No, it's so great. Perfect. So, look for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So my name is Kylie Russ. I am the co-founder and COO of Govern for America. Govern for America's mission uh, is to help our states build the next generation of public sector leaders. We are our 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, We've been around for going on three years, and we run a fellowship program that you can kind of think of like Teach for America for government. So Govern for America, we recruit, match, and train next generation leaders uh, into government roles. So fascinating. And it just, when I was looking into you and the, yeah, and the organization, I was like, wow, lots is happening here. So look, I can't wait to dive deeper into that with you today. But before we do, I'd like to start with a question, which I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, where did you grow up? And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? It's such a great question. Um, So I grew up in Wyndham, New Hampshire, which is in southern New Hampshire. And it's funny when I tell people that or when they see that I have a 603 area code, they're like, oh, wow, so you're one of like six people who who is from New Hampshire, which is maybe true. But I loved growing up in New Hampshire. It I'm very privileged to have come from a beautiful town. My, uh, you know, I I really loved where I grew up. it definitely impacted Govern for America and kind of my founding story. I have been very fortunate in my life to have gone to great schools, to live in a safe town. And I realized actually once I went to boarding school, um, which I did starting my junior year of high school, that not everybody has those same experiences and privileges that I had uh, growing up in my small town in New Hampshire. And that for me was a real reality check. And I really, once I left, um, once I left my town, I saw and went to Phillips Andover, which is a very diverse school. I really saw the value of diversity more in a way that I hadn't before and, um, and recognized pretty early on that our government does not have the same diversity that our country does and saw that as a huge problem. So it was really, um, that was one of their very first times where I recognize this need for a pipeline of diverse talent into government. I love that. I think I love asking that question because I think, you know, so much of who we are and, and all of that is built, almost ingrained in us from a very early age. And I think it's interesting because in your story, it's almost like, you know, very kind of lucky and, and privileged upbringing and, and very grateful, obviously, to have had that and then realising that, hang on a second, you know, when you moved, when you headed to that boarding school, that maybe the, you know, wow, there, there is more out there and, and, you know, not everyone has grown up like me. During that time there, and I guess heading into university, college, did you 
did, you know, what was your sentiment at that time? Were you kind of just interested to get to know different cultures or were you more interested in understanding government more? Like, you know, when did this kind of passion for government and I guess, as you said, diverse representation come into play? Yeah, so I've always been really interested in in systems change, which is a really, it's a word that gets tossed around a lot right now. Um but, but really, it's something that I've been interested in, though I, def- I definitely, before college, couldn't have named that that's what I was interested in. But one of my professors in college, I was, I've always been uh, interested in education, education policy. I really think that we have a lot of problems in our education system, and, uh, and I think that there's a lot of room for improvement that I think would, would help our country in many facets, not just, just, not, not just in education. But one of my professors once said to me, you need to pick where you're going to make your impact and at what level. Are you going to make your impact um, at the highest level? So for example, maybe in the federal government, doing policy work for the federal government where you will reach millions of students, but at maybe a pretty surface level way. Or do you want to do something that is more direct service like teaching where you'll affect a very small number of students in the grand scheme of things, but really deeply and really have a huge impact on their life and their possibly even their life trajectory. And then, or do you fall somewhere in the middle? And I think I I wasn't sure going into college where where I fell, and I certainly couldn't couldn't have even articulated that that was something I was thinking about. But coming out of college, I realized that in order to um, in order for me to have the impact that I needed that I wanted to have, I wanted to get some experience kind of at that ground level um, as a teacher so that I could move to a systems, uh, a systems level impact eventually. It's so fascinating, isn't it? I think, you know, as you, as you kind of mentioned, when, when we're pre-college or when we're just in college, it's almost like it's, it's all very messy up here, you know, in our heads. It's almost like we kind of know what we want to do. We're not too sure. We're scared of making that wrong decision, you know, and I think so many of our peers out there listening can can relate. And, you know, I guess just on that, you know, what advice would you give to our peers out there listening around the confusing time during college and the, you know, and maybe the fear of making the wrong decision and going out there and stuffing up their whole career. What would you say to that? I very firmly believe that things are put into people's paths for reasons. And sometimes they're not good reasons, but it certainly is reasons. And I think that there are um, many situations that feel like, oh my gosh, I'm spinning. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. If you can take just like the first step towards something that you think you may be interested in, you will be amazed at what you can spin that into. So I never thought that, I I mean, frankly, I never thought that I would found an organization. And I think for me, it was, oh, wow, here is this problem that I am experiencing, graduating from college. And then once I was a teacher, I was experiencing issues with, with what I saw as like policy problems. And... I wasn't originally like, I'm going to go out and change this thing, but it felt like it fell into my lap that, okay, I have this unique perspective and I owe it to, um, I owe it to the people of this country to, to do something about it. So I think don't go out looking for like, what is the thing that I'm going to do? Head in that direction that that you think you're interested in, but things will come. Things will come to people who are prepared and willing to let them come. 
So well said. So I just want to backtrack a little bit before we dive deeper into post-college and whatnot into kind of Kylie the early years. You know, you seem so passionate now. You, you know, we've learned a little bit about what you were like in high school and those later years at boarding school. But what was, you know, really early on, you know, was that passion always there? What did you love to do as a child? Like, talk to us about Kylie the early years. Yeah, Kylie the early years was essentially like Harry Potter and sports. That was essentially Kylie the early years. So um, I would like either be running around on pretend broomsticks with my neighbors um, and like probably making them play even though they like were like, okay, we're too old for this. Or um, I was playing sports. So I um, sports was a huge part of my life growing up. I played every sport you could imagine. I played really, I, I played lacrosse and field hockey in college and played competitive ice hockey when I was in high school too. So that was a really important part of my upbringing. And I think that a like I have learned so many lessons that have helped me to this day and many of them are like the really cheesy ones that everybody says like sports teach you how to work hard and like be a good teammate and I think all of that is true but sports for me has also allowed me to point back at times when I was really struggling with something like with a teammate or not performing to what I thought my best ability was and be able to say like okay if I could get through that period I can get through this thing that is a challenge now. And I love that kind of, yeah, that reference you made because I think it totally does correspond. No, I love that. Oh, my goodness. I can just see you running around on your broomstick. It's, <laughs> it's all happening. It's all happening in my head. Um, great. Cool. So let's then dive a bit deeper. So, okay, so you've just, you've just graduated. So for those of... For those of us, I'm not sure if I've mentioned it already. I think you went to you did you went to Harvard, absolutely amazing school and bachelor degree in political science and government. So you kind of knew the direction, as you kind of mentioned, that you wanted to go in. weren't too sure. Talk to us about you know that maybe that final year and then that decision to head out and do teaching. Talk to us about that time. Sure. Um, and this is actually like a real, like a big part of the impetus for starting Govern for America was my final year of college. So I, like I said, I, I knew that I wanted to do something in education or education policy. Wasn't really sure what I, I felt like I knew I wanted to do something service related. And so as I headed into my senior year, I would talk to tons of people, alumni, I would talk to career career service officers, I would talk to professors, both at Harvard, but also just like everywhere. And I, I found that I was com- repeatedly getting the advice of, why don't you try consulting? Or why don't you try banking first? And then once you've done your two to three years of that, then you can go over and like try something new or do whatever you've, you will by then have built your skills. And I now, after talking to, at this point, literally thousands of people across the country, I know that this is just not unique. It's not unique to me. It's definitely not unique to Harvard. It's just something that people um, at universities hear regularly. And I think that that's because they're really clear pathways. And so my senior year, I was kind of like, oh my gosh, I don't think that's what I want. I will admit that I absolutely did do some consulting interviews because I was like, okay, everybody else is doing it. I guess I'm going to give it a try. Uh, I did not, that did not go so well for me, but I, uh, I ultimately decided that teaching my mom is a is a tech integrator and so she's in schools and um 
I ultimately decided that teaching was something I at least wanted to give a try. And and I'm really glad that I did. My, the school that I taught at was amazing. Edward Brook Charter School, just like such an amazing school. I learned so much while I was there, but I'll stop talking about that. But before that's the, um, maybe that's the next question. I don't know. <laughs> that totally is the next question. I think just, just before I do ask that, I just wanted to touch on something that was just so important of what you said, which was that it's almost like the safe path is almost fed to us to go, great, go out there and do fine, go out there and do banking, go out there and maybe be a doctor, whatever whatever it is, you know, and I think so many of us just do follow it, you know, follow along and go, okay, great, this is what it is, but what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who maybe they are at that point, you know, maybe they're being told, yep, just go and do your corporate finance. I mean, that's literally what I did. <laughs> Didn't last very long. So I fully understand and, and can resonate. But, you know, what advice would you give to, give to them if, if they've, they're, they're like, okay, great, well, this is what I have to do. And maybe it doesn't feel right. Yeah. I mean, so I think, you know, I can't, give advice people in that some people have different reasons for doing what they need to do. I will say that like I made very little money as a teacher and um, I was fortunate enough to have my now husband who was able to to like pay for me to do fun things with him and, and things that, you know, sometimes help with rent if I needed it. And I was really fortunate to have a support network that allowed me to be able to, to go directly into public service. Not everybody has that option. And so like, I definitely like to acknowledge that some people need to go into careers that they're going to immediately make money. And, um, I was, I am fortunate that I didn't need to, that I didn't need to, um, do that immediately. But my advice in general, like with that aside, is that there are, those are definitely like the most clear and cut pathways, but there are other pathways. You just need to make them yourself. And like, regardless of whether that means that you're going to be starting your own company or just trying to navigate into a career that doesn't have a clear pathway, this will probably be a common theme over the course of the rest of this, uh, this interview. But networking is so key. Like, LinkedIn message people who you think have interesting jobs and figure out how you can talk to them and learn how they got there. There are pathways and the beauty of something outside of consulting and banking is that like you can make your own pathways. You just need to know where to start sometimes. And I do think that networking and talking to people who are in positions that you eventually want to go to is key. I literally could not agree more. And I think those of you who know me on the show, you know, I talk about, we talk about this all the time. I think it's like, that's the basis of this podcast. I mean, you and I connected on LinkedIn, didn't have any previous anything, you know, and pretty much every single guest is the same. And I just think, you know, um, I just love that you mentioned that because it really, it almost does give you that insight into, okay, if I want to do this, you know, here is, is what one person's opinion on that subject is like. Love it. Okay, so let's talk a little bit, little bit about that. You know, your time at, at at the Brooks School. You know, teaching. You said it was an amazing experience, and then the transition out of that to to actually start your your organization. Yeah. So when I was uh, when I was teaching, I the number one thing I learned is wow, like teachers are amazing superheroes. It is such a hard job. It is like emotional. It's time consuming. It's just like a really really challenging job. But when I was when I was teaching, I routinely saw 
decisions being passed down from the government uh, through policies or programs or new laws that were meant to help support the community that I was that I was serving and teaching in, but actually often were to the detriment of the community. And they, I think that the policymakers were really trying their best to try to meet the needs as they saw them. But because um, the community didn't have someone from their community who was representing them in government in a meaningful way, and the folks in the policymaking positions didn't have the lived experience that matched the community that I was serving, it was really hard to make decisions in an informed way. And so that for me was another wake-up call of, okay, so young people who are passionate about going into public service, but also just government in general, are being funneled into the private sector and and also people who have lived experience that would be valuable for policymakers and government leaders to know about and take their perspective into account while making decisions are also not being listened to. This is, these are both really problematic. And um, what can we do to create a pipeline of people um, who do have lived experience uh, into into um, these roles, and so I'll talk. I'll talk more about. I'll talk more about that. I'm sure. But that for me was one of the first impetuses for. Okay, there's a real pipeline problem here. And when was was this? A couple of years in, was this your first day? You know, when did this kind of realization happen? I would say it was really my second year. My first year, I was like getting my feet under me. It was like, oh my, oh my god, like I have this this classroom full of students that I'm like responsible <laughs> kids for. Everywhere. Uh, yeah, kids everywhere. How do, what do I do? How do I talk to them? The, in the second year, I was able to take a little bit more of a step back and and recognize that something needed to be done because uh, it wasn't just decisions about what happened in the classroom. It was it was decisions about how money was allocated, what types of schools to open, and things like that that are that felt really um, just disconnected from the experience of my community. I find it fascinating because you know many of us might have those experiences where we see things and we go, "Oh, that's not right. What is going on here?" But not many of us act on it. You know, I find it really interesting that you took it upon yourself to go, okay, great, well, I've got to do something. You know, where did that come from for you? You know, why did you feel like it was just you needed to step up? And yeah, how did that happen? What did you, what were the first couple of things that you did? Um, Sure. So I think for me, the, the reason that I felt like I had to do something about it was really started in two places. One was that I did, I had the privilege of being able to look at the situation and say, hmm, I wonder if I can do something about that. And the other piece of that is that I was able to like explore this with someone who is now one of my best friends. So um, I have a co-founder, her name is Octavia Abel, and we actually went to high school together. And we met in high school, but we hadn't, we we hadn't stayed connected really. This is another LinkedIn story. And I connected with her again on LinkedIn because I was like, oh, she has a really interesting job. She was leading strategy for the Department of Innovation in Rhode Island. And I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. What does that mean? And uh, so I LinkedIn messaged her and we reconnected and we started talking about this like shared experience that we had about like push it, getting pushed into private sector and, and why is this? And she would routinely talk about how 
She was the only person in the room making decisions about student loans who was like under the age of 40, still paying student loans. And so we realized that this was not a unique situation to the two of us. And we also recognized after like doing a pretty extensive research that nothing like Govern for America existed already. And so I think those are the first, th- those, those two things really came together to say, okay, we would have really benefited from doing something like this. And we certainly know that our peers would have, and it doesn't exist. Let's, let's see what we can do about this. <laughs> I love that that part of the process. No, yeah, really interesting. So what were those first couple of steps that you took to really get this going and off the ground? Yeah, so we were we were really lucky um, to be a part of the NYU's Entrepreneurship Institute. Um, I was in grad school when we founded this, and so we were able to apply to an accelerator through them, and we got we got in thankfully and. It was super eye-opening. Neither of us had started any any company before. And so this was a way for us to like educate ourselves, not just about, not at all actually in the content that we were building. Um, so not about government, not about training, not about recruiting, but um, about what it actually means to start a business. And I think the first thing that we did and the first thing that they taught us to do was, and Frank Romilovsky, who is the executive director there, uh, has this book that he and, um, and another author wrote together called Talking to Humans. And it is like so on point. We talked to so, so many people, hundreds in the first couple of months. And like I said, at this point, thousands for sure. And not just people who are going to tell you that like your idea is awesome and yeah, we need to teach for America for government, but people who would actually apply. So we would go to college campuses. We would set up meetings with, uh, gov- with government leaders who would be the ones who are actually hiring these fellows. And we, talk- we tried to learn from them, what are your actual pain points? What can we do as an organization to design our organization around what you actually need? And not just say, okay, we're basing this whole organization on our experience and our experience must be the experience of everyone else because at t- up to that point, that was what we were basing it on. And so I think the first step for us was this going out, talking to as many people as possible who were going to give you honest feedback because they're incentivized to see you succeed because they want to use your services. Which I think is just such, like, it's just such a smart way to go about it. I think so many of us get caught up. If we want to start a business, we think of the logos and we think of, you know, we think of the, I mean, I did it 100%. We think of everything maybe everything but the actual real crux of the issue, which is that (laughs) who is going to buy this or who is going to, who am I going to serve through what I'm trying to do? You know, what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who maybe they have no business experience like yourself? You know, you, you, you knew what was up in the industry you wanted to get into and what you wanted to to achieve, but you didn't really know the business side. And maybe they're like you, you know, you five years ago, what advice would you give to them? Yeah, so I actually, um, I, I do coaching for the, for the Entrepreneur Institute. And so I actually just had a coaching session last night for, with them. And um, I was speaking with someone who was 
exactly was exactly in that position. She had a, a really good idea for a company and she was like, okay, I have the idea, now what? And so most people are, can't go through an accelerator, they can't take off 10 weeks, which we had to do for in order to go through this, to go full time. And so for those people, I again just think it's it's the networking and it's the talking to talking to humans to figure out like is this idea yes, is this idea good, but also how can I pivot this idea to fill more of the niche that I'm interested in? Or maybe I don't even know what I'm interested in. I don't know what's needed. You have the idea for where to start. Then go out and try to find people that you just think are going to benefit from this service or be interested in buying this product. Whatever the thing is, go find the people that you think are your customers. And customers is like a weird word to use as a nonprofit, but like, you know, we have customers, they're the, it's the states and it's the, it's our fellows. So finding out what those people actually want and need and try your pitch out. Would they, would they, would they sign up for something like this? Will they get on the wait list for when this actually launches? Do like a mini uh, Kickstarter, but maybe without the money, try to figure out who is actually going to buy into this. Mm, love it. Great advice. Yeah, so let's dive a bit deeper into you've started, you've the balls rolling, you know, you're still teaching at the time. You know, when did this, what was the progression after that? When did you decide, wow, you know, maybe I'm not sure, I don't think you're teaching anymore, but, you know, when did it get to the point where you're like, well, we're actually building something and, and we've got to move forward and I've got to maybe leave the, my older career? Yeah. So, so I actually, so I was teaching, I only taught for two years. And then after teaching, I actually did a year of fundraising um, at a prep school uh, outside of Boston. And when I was there, I applied to grad school. And in grads, in my first semester of grad school, that was actually when I reconnected with Octavia. So I was a full-time grad student when we first connected and first decided to found GFA. I very quickly, as you might imagine, dropped down to part-time and started taking only like two night classes at a time so that I could focus on doing GFA uh, full-time. But the, the, I think that the, this did not feel real to us because people ask us all the time, like, what was the moment where you felt like, okay, this is a real company? So we had incorporated, we had gone through the accelerator, and we were heading to, we, we did career fairs, we went, we recruited online, we had our state partners, like we had all of the things ready. Uh, and it took us from, from the time we ended the accelerator in September I would say it did not feel real for us until April of the next year when we had gone through all of the recruiting, all of the interviewing, all of the matching, and we got our first fellow. So at that point, it was like, oh my gosh, okay, yes, we've been working on this for the last year and a half, but it hasn't felt like this is actually, we're actually working towards anything at all because it's just been like a little bit of smoke and mirrors, like yeah, we're going to have fellows and like, yeah, we're going to have state partners and training and it's going to be awesome. And then once we got our first fellow, we, I remember we called each other and we're like crying. We're like, oh my gosh, I guess we're really doing this. Like we better start, you know, we better start the training and oh my gosh, like we have to pull this whole thing together. So um, for us, I, for me, it was not until we actually had our first person and they were signed and it felt like, okay, now we have responsibility for someone. Oh, I love it. I, I love how you mentioned, you know, we were crying on the phone. Was, I feel like, you know, the entrepreneurial journey is just such an emotional one. You know, I think 
as much as we want it to just be business or we want it to just be, you know, service or whatever it is, it is so tied up into, I feel, who we are if it's aligned with our passion and what we feel, I guess, we need to do. You know, what's been your experience around, you know, the emotional side of of building a, a business? Yeah, I think that can be such a blessing and it can be such a curse. So, like I, people always say that that quote about if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And I think that like there's some truth in that, but I also think that things are still hard and challenging. And like just because you just because you love where you, what you're doing and where you're headed, that doesn't mean you're gonna love every second of what you're doing. And um, I I think for me that sometimes in the past has come out in a in a way that has been really challenging. So. I, when I think back about challenges that I've faced or we've faced in, as, as an organization, last year we, um, last year at this time, we were getting ready to head into our first cycle of fellows. And, and we kick it off with like this huge summer institute or bring everyone together and we train them and it's like this really amazing experience, but we were building it all ourselves. And at that time, it was literally my, me and Octavia, my co-founder, and my husband. And um, my husband <laughs> was hands in on grad- deck. Yeah, so my husband was in grad school at the time, so we knew he was going to have to leave after, um, after he was done with that. But it was two people trying to pull off this, like, TFA, this, this TFA-like thing where um, we just simply were stretched way too thin. And I think, and for me, that manifested in, I care so deeply about this going well. And I care so deeply about the fact that I think that putting next generation talent into these government roles is going to change what our country looks like. It's going to change the way that our country runs. And that's so much pressure on a couple early career people. And for me, it's it, it is absolutely what drives me because I do think that we're do we we can change our country for the better, but it can also be really really draining. And when it it oftentimes is hard to separate the what we're do, what work from the rest of our lives. And so when things are not going well or it's really overwhelming or anxiety producing, I think it can be really hard, especially now in this time of coronavirus where we're all home all the time. I do, I, I think it's, it is challenging. And for me, I like went through, I went months last year where I like didn't really sleep, not because not because I didn't have time, but because I was so anxious all the time that I couldn't sleep because I was like, oh my gosh, what if this goes wrong? Oh my gosh, what if this goes wrong? So I think it's such a blessing because it's amazing to be able to work on something you're passionate about, but it can be, it can be a curse too. Mm-hmm. I just could not agree more. What are some of the strategies or the things that you use when you're in that really stressed state? I am very fortunate to have a really amazing support network. I have, um, my, my family is amazing. My husband is like, literally a rock star. I, he would like last year, especially when I was going through the really challenging phases, he would like stay up with me and, and, you know, talk to me about like, what's, what's stressing you out. So I think having people who you can really, really rely on is helpful. I also, uh, was not uh, a big meditator. I wasn't, I didn't, it's not that I didn't believe in it. I just had never really given it a try. And 
I, um, I did start to meditate and I started to listen to like sleep apps and, and things like that. And I've moved away from doing that explicitly, but I do think that it, it built up my personal mental stamina to be able to put up blocks to say, okay, I'm laying down at night. Oh, what if this person like makes this bad decision and like, that's going to, that's going to affect GFA in this way. And I have gotten much better about saying, nope. That is not something you're working on right now. So you need to not think about that until tomorrow morning. Go ahead and write it down, but then you have to stop thinking about it. And so I think that took a long time for me to get better at. Like def- it took me like many months of trying to work on it, and I'm still not awesome at it all the time. But I highly recommend trying to build up mental stamina to, to, to make that separation a little easier. So I just, yeah, I couldn't agree more. So well said. Amazing. So look... Oh, what a conversation. What just so great. So many great gems in here. I hope you're all taking it in as I am. So I guess as we, you know, start to progress to, to the closing of the of the episode, I'd love to learn a little bit more about what, you know, the goals are for Governed for America. You mentioned last year you were at, where are you guys at now? How are you dealing with, with COVID and whatnot? And talk to us a little, yeah, a little bit about that. So our our vision for where we are headed eventually, like you know, like our big vision is that our state and our government, our states and our government in general reflects the value and diversity um, of our country, and that the next generation of leaders sees government as the place that they can make systematic impact. In order to get there, we know we have a lot of work to do. We have many partners in this work, which we're which we're really lucky to have. We last year had a had a cohort of fifteen people across uh, across four different locations, and this year uh, we were meant to double in size to thirty. Due to the coronavirus, um, we are at the same level as last year, so we're having another fifteen people across this year three different states, and we will continue to expand. You know, coronavirus has affected every business in its own way. We're really, we feel really fortunate that we're ha- that we have a class at all this year and that our government partners recognize the value that this next generation talent is bringing to the table so much so that they are still investing in bringing these like truly, truly amazing candidates down to work with them. Um, so that that's where we are in terms of the actual fellowship. We, because we're such a small team, we're able to spin up a COVID response core very quickly. So um, we basically looked at uh, the people who have applied to the fellowship, the people who've expressed interest in the fellowship, and we were staring at a list of thousands of people. And that's amazing because we place so few. So we've had thousands of people apply for 30 spots over two years, which is great in many ways because that means it's it's selective. We're getting like the best the me- the best and most diverse candidates. However, it also means that there are thousands of people who want to contribute who are not getting placed at all. And so, and that's obviously not not something that we want. And so, uh, we looked at we looked at this uh, this list of people, and we said, okay, what would it what would it take to help match these thousands of people? to positions that are more short-term, like short-term summer internships, to our state partners or our federal partners who need extra support in this time but don't have any capacity to actually bring people on. And so we were able to start this kind of crazy, fast matching process where we've matched people 
with projects in North Carolina, Colorado, Missouri, the federal government, Rhode Island, Connecticut. Um, and we're matching people to these virtual projects, uh, which I think is a really amazing thing that only can come with a really small team that you can be so nimble and say, here's what we have. Here's what's needed. Okay, let's do it. So that's, that's been our direct response to COVID. And then in terms of, uh, in terms of all of the, racial disparities and and racism that is plaguing our country and has been it has been you know since our founding of a, as a country but has come to light in recent uh weeks in a way that it has before but is feels like in this moment it's it's more it's more apparent than ever to people who are not having to deal with systemic racism all the time um and so in direct response to that. We are also doing a lot of training with our staff, with our small but mighty team. And and we're taking a really hard look at like who is on our board and who is on our team and how does that line up with what we're saying are our anti-racist values, which we are constantly on a quest to continuously diversify our Yes, our team and our and our board, but also our fellowship. We'll have our this year's cohort is more diverse than last year's in every single way. So this is always something that we're striving for, and it's definitely something that we know we need to get better at. So those are those are the those are the things that were are top of mind for us right now. Oh, I love it. And I just I love that you mentioned, you know, when you've got a small team, you can really get so much done. And I mean, what you guys have achieved and what you've, you know, in three years, or just less, a little bit shy of three years, you know, is absolutely amazing. Um, it's so cool to see you yourself. You've been featured on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list for your amazing contribution. Um, I guess, you know, one of the final questions I've got is, what are the three key pieces of advice that you give to our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you were starting out? Yeah, um, that's a good question. All right, three pieces. So one of them has to be about networking. And I'll, I prob- I'll probably will make two of them about networking, but, but slightly different from each other. Networking is like, I think that's a really bad rap because people are like, say things like networking is transactional. And I don't think that that has to be the way that networking is. Networking can be, A, mutually beneficial to you and the person who you're talking to, but it also can just be about, like, learning from people and asking them questions. People love to talk about themselves, so ask them questions about themselves and be authentic in the way that you interact with people, and people will want to be authentic and will want to help you. Um, So that's one piece. The second piece is actually something that I learned very recently, which I love and is very related to networking. So Lindsay Pollack is an expert in intergenerational relationships um, at work, I should note. And she, uh, she came and spoke with our fellows recently, and she gave this whole presentation about how to build mentors and find people who are going to help be helpful and supportive in your careers. And she told them about this idea of of an advi- a personal advisory board, which I had never heard of before, but I think makes total sense because I think there's a lot of pressure for people to find the one right mentor that is going to be the person that leads them through their careers. And that's not realistic because especially millennials and Generation Z, 
we don't think about work as being something that we're going to like start. And then 30 years later, we're going to be progressing up the chain in the same thing. We're going to have multiple careers and we're going to be working for a long time. And so, um, so building out a personal advisory board is a concept that I am certainly doing and, and plan to do more of now that I have a good name for it, because you can pick people who are in different areas of your interest groups and also people who are not just career advisors, but people who are going to help you navigate tricky personal situations. So that would be my second piece of advice is build your personal advisory board. Uh, and the third one is, uh, again, about people. Talk talk to people. When you have an idea for something, shop it around. See what people think. And don't just ask people who you know are going to say, it's a great idea, because sometimes the pieces of really hard advice are the, are the most important advice. And so asking people... Asking people for their input, especially if you aren't an expert in what you're interested in becoming an expert in, is the most important way that you're going to move forward in becoming an expert. I love it. So great. So look, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you, Kylie, for the phenomenal work you've done and that you're doing for the impact you're making, you know, for the ability to pivot so quickly and to, to have those direct response programs and, and things in place. You know, I think through your story, you know, especially the women out there, the amazing peers who are women out there listening will really resonate with the fact that, you know, you didn't know it all to start off with, but yet you've been able to, to make such an impact. And yeah, we just really appreciate you for that. Well, uh, why, you know, we're well, actually one thing that I'd love to plug is that we are uh, we're getting ready to post a new job um, to, to join our, our our small but mighty team. So for any uh, any any listeners out there who are uh, excited about what you've heard, excited to make an impact, excited about next generation talent in government, we are hiring a new program staff and we would love people who are, are likely to listen to this podcast and are entrepreneurial, are interested in getting out and, and doing something important. So thank you so much for having me. Of course, of course. And so the final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? Yes. I love it. So I, I touched on this a little bit in the question about what's what has been challenging about pursuing something that you're passionate about, but doing something that you love and that you're passionate about, I personally think for those of us who have the opportunity to, to follow their passion, it makes it makes your life so full. I feel like I, I, I love talking about my job, of course, but I just love talking about the impact that my job is is having. I, I don't I don't care so much about talking about the fact that I founded it as much as the fact that I think Govern for America will really change the way that our country looks and behaves in in the coming years as these people become leaders in government. So I think finding something that you're passionate about and finding the way that you can contribute to that passion and really use your strengths as a person and as a worker um, to, to, to push forward uh, into the world that you want to see. That's what, that's what makes, that's what makes your job fun. And I don't want to say that's what makes life worth living, but it certainly makes <laughs> life, it certainly makes life a lot better to, to be able to work on something that you love. 
Oh, Kylie, ladies and gentlemen, we have had a blast. Where can people learn more about you and Govern for America? Yeah. So LinkedIn me, as you've probably noticed, I love LinkedIn. Uh, please do. I'm always happy to, to connect with people. I've had a lot of help along the way, so I'm, I'm always willing to give it back. And then please learn more about Govern for America by, you can just type in Govern for America, F-O-R, and you will, we should be the first thing to pop up on Google, but otherwise it's govern, G-O-V-E-R-N, for the number four, america.org and uh and that is where you can find out all about us amazing oh kylie thank you so much so appreciate you and for everyone else listening we will end with that peers that's a wrap thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the peers to peers podcast we hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played, and leave us a review. We produce with passion, and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers.